Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, fraud fighters, we have made it to Thursday. (laughs) I know that I feel like every week feels significant, especially the last few months. But for those of you in retail and on the issuing side, as well as the consumer lending side of fraud prevention, I know that the holidays in particular are overwhelming in a lot. And for the rest of you, there's a lot of other things going on too. Fraud does not sleep, as we know. (laughs) And it has been quite a week for me too. And I'll share a little bit of that a little bit later because my unexpected plans for this week have actually inspired me to share an analogy that I think that a lot of you will enjoy and appreciate. But first, I just wanted to kind of you know, give some updates on the fraud ring that I've been covering as much as I can publicly over the last few weeks that are targeting primarily online retailers, although now hearing reports from some very large brands that have digital goods and gift cards that are also being targeted. And it appears to be connected to this massive, sophisticated, coordinated attack. So I'll give a couple more updates on that, as well as a couple minutes about Tuesday's episode with Ian Mitchell and Terry Schlappert. I really appreciated their time and expertise and and sharing their passion, even though they're really hard topics to talk about. They're important. I'll also talk a little bit about what's going on now just in the world of fraud in some conversations I've had over the last week or two and just a couple highlights there. And we'll dive into one particular issue that I know is targeting several companies a little more next Thursday, but I'll give a preview today. And then lastly, I am going to share this unexpected analogy that I thought of this week as I was caring for, and I still am actually, two three-year-old twin girls who belong to two very close friends of mine from high school who have had a really tough family emergency that they needed to leave town for immediately. And so I flew down to another state and have been here for five days. At first it was going to be two, but that's just how life happens. And it's been sort of a really long time since I've taken care of toddlers. I have an 18-year-old and only one of them, but really helped me realize how much fraudsters are like toddlers. And I've shared at least, I think I've just shared one of these analogies before, kind of in keynote speeches or presentations that I've given at public or private events and conferences, probably on this podcast in one of the previous 151 episodes of Fraudology. But I thought of two more and I it's both educational, but also maybe a little lighthearted. And I know that is helpful for all of us. We need a balance. So diving in a little bit to give a light update on this massive fraud ring that I've been covering. If you have not heard those previous episodes, I really, really suggest that you at least listen to the two episodes that I recorded with Shoshana Marini two weeks ago. 
or actually, sorry, last week, if I'm losing track of time. So I really recommend that you go back and listen to the two episodes that I recorded with Shoshana Marini, the co-author of Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing. Last week, we did a part one and a part two that really talked high level about this attack and who they are, why it's happening, who it's targeting, and some of the general MO that ties them together and what makes this attack bigger than anything we've ever seen and different than anything we've ever seen. And then I played Tuesday's interview that honestly you know, was recorded with Ian and Terry weeks ago because I you know saw this trend coming. I it hadn't hit e-commerce or banking fraud that I knew of at the time, you know, when we recorded it, I thought that it was primarily, you know, what we used to, and I'm going to try not to refer to it as much as this at all now that we know, what we used to refer to as human bot farms, B-O-T, or scripted attacks, because obviously bots can be detected based on speed, but humans are much harder to detect as different than, you know, typical shoppers. What we used to call human bot attacks are now seeming to be due to human trafficking and, and modern slavery. And okay. so that's why I wanted Ian and Terry to come on. But I also wanted them to talk about Project Umbra as they did, which is their first flagship project that's such a huge success and pretty mind-boggling. I think a lot of us haven't ever thought about applying fraud-fighting tactics to other problems outside of protecting our own company and organization's financial interests, as well as, you know, customers and keeping them safe and keeping customer trust and keeping them safe. But I thought it was really important to talk about. And I really hope that we start to see more engagement from the e-commerce and marketplace and fintech side with the noble, because if just the banking and financial institutions can have this much success, I know that the private sector can too. I know that there's a whole other half of the picture on that side. So that was why I wanted to have them. But I really recommend listening to the last three episodes for sure. If you haven't yet, if you don't know what I'm talking about, about this unprecedented, and I don't like to use that term because I think it's used too much, but this gets it. It's unprecedented fraud ring that's targeting retailers. It's very much continues to grow and mature depending on each merchant. You know, we all picture things the way it is on the other side, and I'm sure it's not accurate, but the way I see it is they've just got this giant whiteboard or several that are tracking anytime orders are canceled. Okay, what are the patterns? Okay, we need to change this. We need to change that because they're continuing to morph within each company and at different speeds. You know, merchants as well as their solution providers are unable to identify specific vulnerabilities and manipulations. So they will exploit that to the 10th degree. But then once that vulnerability is closed or patched, then they will you know, move on to something else in the same system. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that all the companies I've been working with, I've noticed they're facing different parts of this at different times. So it's been helpful to start to map it out. One of the merchants who is so brilliant, and I really, really wish I could say their name and where they work because I believe that they deserve all the credit, has been following this particular group for the last 18 months. Because their company is so large and such a big target and has very popular items for resale, they've been seeing this group for 18 months. And I remembered them saying some parts of it, but I just had not put it together that anything was different until really the last couple of weeks. So this one person at that company knows more about this 
particular group than anyone I've ever met in my life. I mean, knows exactly, okay, if you do this, this is what they're going to do. And that, and I have definitely picked up on a lot of that, but they have offered and are getting permission to help myself and Shoshana put together kind of a map of those different attack vectors. And we'll be sharing that with the group of retailers that we've all been working together and sharing information, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But I'm also balancing my consultancy in the podcast. So I was just trying to find time for these pro bono projects. But I think it's really important and will help as we see more and more companies, including now digital goods companies that just really sell gift cards online. And that's it. We're seeing, you know, but specific to their brand, whether that's a quick service restaurant or a video game company or, you know, anything like that or any kind of popular gift card. I think that as we see more and more merchants being targeted and this group expanding their reach, we need to provide a roadmap so that it's helpful to know. I mean, when I'm working one-on-one with a merchant, I'm not just looking at what they're facing now. I'm thinking about, okay, when we put this in place and that in place, where's the next vulnerability? And if you're not addressing it now, you're, you you have a plan for that and you know exactly what's going to happen when a certain alert triggers. So that's the kind of thing that you know we'd like to work on going forward. But I cannot commit to a time frame at this point. My life is in flux, to say the least. But we're also seeing them taking advantage of BOPIS transactions, buy online, pick up in store. There were a couple of interesting trends that a few retailers shared on last week's call specific to online retailers that also have in-store transactions. One trend was that they were seeing one test purchase on a smaller dollar item being shipped to a store and then a larger dollar item being shipped to a new address. And for some systems, and I talked about this when we talked about whitelisting fraud so long ago, it feels like, you guys about a year ago or even more, you know, talking about whitelisting fraud. And that really only works on some of the legacy rules-based fraud providers now, but for a while it was on a lot of them. But, you know, once one successful transaction goes through, some fraud systems will say, oh, well, the next ones are completely good. Even if, you know, there hasn't been enough time at all, there's been a couple of days, there's no time to get a charge back yet. So that's one way they're doing it. There's other ways of a split transaction. So similar to making two separate transactions. And these are all things, you know, I often say that fraud is all more about processes than it is technology. Technology is so important, but if if you don't understand every single point where you're vulnerable within your process, then you're going to be continually chasing your tail or putting out fires and, and, you know, really playing triage. So, and not ever really to get ahead. So in this case, they're exploiting the fact that in some systems, and this is either an order management system and or fraud system, sometimes both, sometimes one of them, when there's a split transaction and one item in a cart is being, or one or more items are being shipped to a store and one or more items are being shipped to someone's house. Some retailers have learned that their system only records the store address as the shipping address in their fraud prevention system. So like I said, sometimes that's because that's what the OMS captures as their primary address. And so that's what's sent to the fraud provider. Other times the fraud provider is only able to grab one delivery address and so it's just going to be the first one and that's the store. So definitely if, if you fall into this category and you don't know it's how your system does that, I highly recommend finding that out very, very soon because in this case, they will you know, put at least two items in their cart, one or two or three items that are shipped to the store 
are very low dollar. The items that are shipped to a residential address, whether that's for triangulation or for reshipping mules, they're updating a new address, but the system doesn't catch it, you know, because it, whether it's on account takeover or a new account, it might be a risky address, but the system isn't going to catch it if they're just recording those, the delivery addresses the store. So that is happening on very large dollar transactions. And then almost always happens in this case is the items don't ever get picked up. They'll just get put back on the shelf. So those are a couple of things that I thought that I would share today as I know that that is a trend that a couple of retailers saw a month or two ago, but more and more are seeing that now as they're able to identify some of the first of the preferred methods of fraud of this group. They're now adapting and changing and taking advantage of buying online, picking up in store, as well as processes that probably when, you know, a retailer quickly set up Oh man, remember when multi-channel and omni-channel were all the buzzwords like six, seven, eight years ago? That was when, you know, so many retailers were setting that up so quickly, they weren't really thinking through or having time to really think through every detail of what everything happened. And so maybe you've noticed over the years, huh, okay, well, this one order goes to delivery, but it's never been exploited or this one focus order has split delivery options, but the delivery addresses are store. So of course it's not going to look high risk. You might notice that here and there, but you may be seeing that exploited very quickly. And BOPIS is also very difficult for physical goods stores because oftentimes you have a 30 minute SLA. Oftentimes you need to approve that order very quickly so that the store can, you know, pick it and then go ahead and do that. Other times, the other one I know that is kind of happening in some places, depending on if they allow it per policy, is ordering off a lot of items to a store and then calling that physical store after it's been picked and asking to ship it to another address. And not all companies allow that, but some do. And especially if a store is on commission or they're busy or the you know sales associates are new and they haven't been trained to be suspicious about things like that, that is another way that that can be exploited. So those are just kind of the biggest updates I wanted to provide on that ring. There are a couple other things you know I'm working with, starting to be in talks with some federal law enforcement in the U.S. and trying to support these retailers in other ways. Admittedly, I've not been able to support them as much as I wanted to this week. But again, I said it a little bit at the top, but I'll explain in a few minutes. I've been very busy in toddler world the last five days trying to stay in fraud world, but poof. Those are two weird worlds to balance. And I know a lot of you with kids are probably like, yeah, tell me about it, but I'm not used to it. So the context switching is definitely, it's a steep, it's steep switch. So just touching on Tuesday's episode again, just really quickly on the human cost of fraud. They were tough subjects to talk about. I really debated, you know, is this the appropriate format for that? I feel much more comfortable talking about the financial aspects of fraud, but and I think a lot of us feel more comfortable learning and, and listening about it. But at the same time, it's really important to know how rapidly the fraud side is changing and growing. And we always need to know what we're up against. And I heard from more than one fraud fighter who listened to both episodes of Shoshana and I talking about this particular fraud attack targeting retailers and how they're able to scale. And it's, you know, we would traditionally say, well, it looks like, you know, based on all these different indicators there, it looks like they're utilizing a human bot farm. But as I mentioned earlier, those human bots, we've always kind of assumed, I think, that they were willing participants and that they were worthy opponents in this fight. But now that we know that the majority, especially in Southeast Asia, of quote unquote human bot farms are actually results of human trafficking and modern slavery, 
I've heard from more than one of you that has said that that has helped. It's not that we want to think about that at all, but it helps in understanding the opponent. It helps in understanding what you're looking for. And, you know, one benefit, and this is me just trying to look for any kind of silver lining. I'm not trying to say this is actually, I don't know if I'd ever call this a win, but just trying to look for any kind of benefit of this. And I think we mentioned it in our conversation last week too, but, you know, when you have to train a large number of people for any kind of job, whether it's your call center or the fulfillment center or any of those types of jobs where you're training a lot of people, there will be patterns because everyone was trained in the same way. There will be differences because each person is different, but the training and especially if they're doing this and they're being tracked and they're being threatened if they don't do a certain number and all that, they're probably following their training quite closely. So that is one benefit to this, but it's really hard. And I am glad that for whatever it's worth that, you know, after learning this component that you're able to kind of change the way you think about the opposition and possibly have that change your approach when building strategy and all of that as well. So even though I have been very occupied with these busy toddlers this week, I have had the chance to have some really good conversations with some senior fraud fighters at very large companies as I get to every every week. And I did have to reschedule a few of them, but a few that I had were really good and honestly fueled my soul because I really enjoyed just taking a break from singing and dancing and making crafts and baking and trying to keep them busy to you know talk about fraud. That's I think a lot of you can relate, right? It's not that I don't like the, the other one. It's just this is my world. This is what I love to do. And meeting and talking with fraud fighters like lights me up, whether it's for an interview on the podcast or, you know, unfortunately, because a lot of you work for very large companies and you're not able to speak on the record. It's sharing things with me. And then I will often try to sanitize and share it out with different groups, depending on, you know, if it can be shared publicly or not. And just in the last couple of days, there's been some themes. So one of them has been why online fraud, how it's increased and, you know, why it's increasing. It's continuing to increase in the last 12 to 18 months. I shared a lot of those thoughts on a previous episode. I didn't look it up before recording this, but I think it was over the summer when I talked about online fraud is in a state of emergency. I think that I will update that at some point soon with some more context from a higher level, as well as some more specific things that have contributed to that, or, you know, fat, contributing factors, right, that have contributed to that in specific verticals, like retail, like payment processing, like peer-to-peer money transferring, like investments or gaming or crypto, obviously, has, you know, changed a lot recently. You know, as Stephen Sargent and I talked about a few weeks ago, and as we all know, if we read any kind of industry news, or just news in general. But then the other bigger topic that has come up quite a bit, and I mean, to be honest, it's been, I've been seeing this early spring last year uh, in conversations with some companies, especially those that provide payment processing to a lot of small and medium online businesses, but it's card testing. And if you're not familiar with card testing, it's really just verifying that a credit card is still active and that you can get an authorization on it before using it for a very large dollar purchase. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. 
You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So sometimes that's done by the same person that will end up doing the cash out. Other times it's a whole different group that will then resell verified card numbers at a higher price than just a full dump without being tested. Because a lot of times credit card numbers will be revealed for months before they're used. And so, you know, someone needs to go in and and run it for a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars to see is this card still active? And if so, can I then go use it somewhere else for a high dollar transaction and resell that item? Or can I check and make sure that this credit card is good or these thousands of credit cards are good and then resell this for a higher price than just if I gave a thousand credit card numbers without knowing how many are active. So, you know, that's card testing. It's been around for forever, but there's a lot of impacts to the merchants and the payment processors that are exploited to this from extra costs to fewer authorized sales by credit card companies to more chargebacks to all kinds of things. And it also can be difficult if you're a company that hasn't seen this before to know how to stop it. There are other companies that saw this 10, 20 years ago and they you know, put things in place to help with that. But it really varies based on several factors. And I've received more than one call, text or email recently about that. And it's kind of come into two categories. One is due to a recent article that Stripe published talking about a massive attack of card testing that they saw on their merchants between February and August of 2022. Did I know a fair amount about this prior to it being published? Maybe, but wasn't my news to share. But I really actually appreciate and applaud Stripe for sharing this because a lot of times this is something that companies would want to bury under the rug. But it's important not only to be transparent with your clients and customers to say, hey, there was this problem and and we identified it for you, but we understand that some of you may have been impacted and here's what it was. 
but also for the bigger community to know, oh, okay, that wasn't just us. Like I was talking to another company, well, actually more than one this week, who has said it was really interesting to know that because we saw the same thing around the same time. And and now I've reached out to someone there to learn more and see if it was the same group and how we can kind of share notes on how we identified them and are stopping them now. And then there's also been a few companies that are seeing card testing now. I will say back on Stripe's article, one of the things that I thought was really interesting from that was that they shared that card testing is up more than 100 times just since 2019. So I think that those of us who have been in fraud for a long time kind of think, oh, card testing is something we saw in the early 2000s and it's gone now. Well, it really, really depends on the type of company it is, their security and risk setup and profile, their risk stack, what alerts they have going and all of that. And it also depends on the way that the card testing is happening. So how the bad actors are testing those cards. There's a few different ways and and the how can lead to the what to do to prevent it. So it's not a topic that I could really prepare for because I want to, as always, go you know provide a lot of really good information on that topic and do some more dedicated work on it. So I will be talking more about it next Thursday on, you know, why and how they do it and how to identify it and what to do if you see it on your network and the overall payments, costs and fees and the reason why you need to always, you know, be on the lookout for this and know where to look and what to do and, and what, you know, to ask on that. You know, there are some specific things. There's a specific checklist that I've created for clients when I work with them for card testing specifically that I probably won't be going through every detail, but I'll provide a lot of information that should hopefully help you with diagnosing and addressing the problems. And also, if you're not a fraud fighter on the ground, but you support them, it will probably be helpful to you as well. I've gotten a couple of texts and messages from people that work for solution providers who have said, hey, our client is saying they're having this problem. What do we do? How do we help them? So that will be next Thursday, something to look forward to. You know, it's funny. I honestly thought that this entire episode would be less than 30 minutes, but I really just need to be honest with myself at this point. But I'm getting up to like the 25 minute mark on my end. I know once my editors take out all my ums and ahs, it'll probably be much shorter because they are so amazing. And extra thank you to them because this is the latest I have ever sent them. I'm recording this less than 24 hours before this episode will be out. So I am forever grateful. But what I wanted to talk about today is something that is kind of, you know, for those of you in fraud, you probably get it, right? Even if we're in our quote unquote normal lives and not working on fraud, we often will be thinking about it or how this compares to, you know, something in fraud or whatever throughout the day. And it's, you know, I don't know if it's a sickness or it's a strength, but (laughs) I know that a lot of us are that way. And I really enjoy analogies and I really appreciate my 10,000 foot view of the industry and getting to share that with you guys. And so I think that both of those lend themselves to each other. So there's one of the, the first one I've been saying for years in different ways, but the other two are fairly new and they're inspired by the week I've had. Like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, two of my closest friends from high school, they started dating when we were all 15 and we met in 10th grade Spanish class and have stayed friends for, we don't need to talk about how many years but we'll just say it's between 20 and 30 years. And they are from my hometown, obviously, but they live in another state. And I've been lucky enough to when I come down to the state for work, which I do fairly often, it's, it's in California. 
and they're in the general Bay Area that I've gotten to see them and their kids and give the parents a date night because babysitters are expensive, but babysitters for twins have a minimum rate that is insane. (laughs) It's certainly more than I ever made an hour for the first half of my career. So because the girls knew me when there was a really sudden and unexpected family emergency with one of uh, my friends' parents, and unfortunately that parent didn't make it. So they needed to go and say goodbye. And it, you know, been a longer process than we first assumed, but that's okay, right? There are some things we can't set our watch to and that are just more important. This week has definitely reminded me how important prioritization is. Because even though my work is so important to me and so is my family and the things that I had planned, including a, a getaway weekend to an undisclosed location with one of my favorite fraud fighters to celebrate their birthday. And there were some, there's some big perks with their job that we were going to be able to take advantage of that I would never be able to do. Otherwise, I canceled it. And you know what? I'm bummed, but it's okay. My priority needed to be being there for my friends. And because I really am, because of COVID, they don't, the girls don't know a lot of other people. So anyway, because of all that, I have been down here taking care of twin three-year-old girls for the last five days. So if I sound tired, now you know why. (laughs) I do have a venti iced coffee next to me, but (laughs) no amount of caffeine in the world. Anyone with twins or toddlers or young kids, I know you guys, you guys get it. It is a lot and I have so much admiration for you. When my daughter was younger, I was at a different point in my career. There's no way I could do, you know, everything I've committed to with a young one around. So Anyway, I'm getting to it. I just wanted to give a little bit of context to this. They are the sweetest girls and I absolutely adore them. And I love being auntie, as they call me. I'm a big believer in family, friend, family. And it's a word my husband and and daughter and I made up years ago. I really believe that there's such thing as family. And I'm lucky to have a very large extended family. But these ones, like I said, I've known for more than half my life and literally do anything for them. You know, so... I dropped everything. Here we are. And they're amazing kids, but they're busy and they're a lot and toddlers test boundaries and so do fraudsters. So here are the top three ways. And I'd love to hear if this inspires you to think of some other ways. I am sure there are lots of ways, but the top three ways that I have identified that online fraudsters are a lot like toddlers. Number one, and this is the one I've shared before in, in different ways over the years, but Neither of them, whether it's a fraud online fraudster or a toddler, won't take no for an answer. Instead, they will creatively find a way to get what they want. <laughs> for a toddler, if it's a cookie jar and even if you put it, you know, on the highest shelf, they will find a chair to step up onto to the counter and then step onto a cabinet to get up to the cookie jar. They're not taking no for an answer and they'll get very creative. Same with fraudsters, right? You can't tell them no. You can't tell them, hey, I only have a fraud budget of X. So you can't steal any more than this or, you know, hey, we can't get a new fraud provider implemented in the next nine months. So we need you to wait. No, that's not how fraud works. They do not care. And, you know, we've talked about that a lot, right? You can't predict or chart fraud the way you can chart and predict a lot of other things like good sales volume and number of customers and conversion rates and things like that. So for fraudsters, they you put something in place to stop them, they will find a workaround. They will continuously do it. They are creative and continual problem solvers. And they are very much all about eyes on the prize. Just like a toddler will get very fixated on 
this is what I need and I need it right now and I will do anything I can to get it. That is exactly how online fraudsters are too. You know, really the only way to keep up with them or to stop them from this is you have to outsmart them. You have to get creative. You have to anticipate. Okay, if they know where the cookie jar is, here's all that they're going to do. If they don't know where the cookie jar is, where are the places they're going to look? What are they going to do next? Etc. Get creative, right? And try to be adaptable and think outside the box as quickly as possible. Because for toddlers, it's for using the cookie analogy all the way through they eat enough cookies, their tummy's going to hurt and they're going to get sick. For fraudsters, if they overindulge on your website or for your bank or financial institution, well, you're the one feeling the pain. Your business is the one feeling the pain. All right, number two, and I think a lot of you that have had kids will relate to this. If it's quiet, it usually means that they're up to trouble that you don't know about. There's a sign that I've seen at several gift shops that say something like, when you have toddlers, dot, 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 quiet is suspicious. And I think that's so true with fraud as well. Actually, that's how the messages that I started getting on Black Friday a week and a half ago started was, it seems like it's way too quiet for Black Friday in the fraud queue. Or we have a lot of orders in our manual review, but they don't look fraudy. Like, I know we're missing something. And that can be really stressful because then it's like, well, gosh, if I can't see it right away in my system, where is it? What's happening? Is it not payment fraud? Is it refund fraud? Is it promo code abuse? Are they working on logins right now and doing credential stuffing? And then they'll hit with a monetary loss a couple days or weeks later. All of those things have to go into account and you have to think about that. You can't just go, okay, it's quiet. My fraud queue is quiet. The, you know, few KPIs that I track in real time look good. So I'm going to take a vacation or I'm going to, you know, go play golf for the rest of the afternoon. We don't have that luxury as fraud fighters. I mean, it's very important to take time out. And it's something I continually have to remind myself. And I know a lot of you do too. But when it comes to this and really setting up alerts within your system so that you can really tell quickly if something is out of whack and not just the usual alerts that you would do, but and maybe not just the ones out of the box that your provider provides you, but other ones as well, having a dashboard, something that I know Diana has been working on, creating one, hopefully, possibly that can be used as a template for other companies as well, that provides, the dashboard would provide alerts on things that maybe it isn't common for every company to be monitoring that in real time, but it's critical to be able to spot those things. It's a little bit more than velocity rules and exception reporting. So that's very, but anything works, right? If that's all you have access to right now, velocity rules and exception reporting, do that, use that. Try to be aware of the quiet times before they unexpectedly hit you and you realize, oh, wow, the toddlers got into the finger paints and they just decided to paint the wall. Awesome. I'm kind of mixing up the analogy a little bit, but I think you guys get it. You know, it's similar to having a video monitor to detect outlier activity. I'm lucky enough that my friends have a video monitor in their girls' room and so I can have it next to the bed and know when one of them is starting to get fussy before they full-on scream and run around the house in a circle half awake, which unfortunately what happened the first night before I knew that there was a video monitor. <laughs> so that's why I'm monitoring them and realizing, okay, I, even though I think they're asleep and even though I think that they're not doing anything, it's quiet. So I just want to have a way to monitor it. 
And then the last way that I thought of, and like I said, I am all here for additions to this analogy or any other one. I love speaking analogies. If you've listened to any one of these episodes, you know that. But I love learning in them too. I actually, there was a listener and somebody that I spoke with this week who gave such a good analogy about, you know, how why ML is machine learning is important, but it cannot be the only thing that you use. And it's certainly not an end all be all solution. And they're also not alike at all, right? So every, every provider says they have best in class machine learning, but how are they using it? And you know, what are they doing with it? That's more important. I love hearing other people's analogies. But this third one for why online fraudsters are a lot like toddlers is that working with or for fraud, it's against them. But working with toddlers and working against fraud and fraudsters is hard and it's exhausting. It takes a lot out of you. So it's not enough to think of it as a job. It's not enough to think of it as a J-O-B and just clock in and clock out. Taking care of toddlers, if you are, you know, their parent or their full-time caretaker, whether it's, you know, short-term or long-term, as well as taking care of fraud and being in charge of it, being a leader of fraud prevention and doing all that needs to be done in there, as well as optimizing sales and, and just that whole thing, it can't just be a career for you. Those that treat it just like a job it shows their their metrics. It shows the way that their company looks at fraud and treats fraud and and understands fraud is so different and you know not enough. Both of these things, you have toddlers and working against fraudsters. It's not a job, it's a calling. It has to be a passion. It has to be something that you care about so much that you will wake up at two o'clock in the morning. If, you know, a toddler is starting to get a little bit antsy in their bed and making noise before it goes out of control. You have to love it so much that even if you are at a holiday with your family and one of your alerts goes off, you need to drop everything and go do that. Or you have to give up playing your kid's soccer game for a day or all these sacrifices that so many of us have had to make that we, the sacrifice isn't as hard when we love it and when it's a passion and when it's a calling. When it's a job, ugh, it's the worst. And I'm not saying it's wonderful and we're like, hey, I get to, you know, work on fraud or I get to push orders through manual review because one of our systems broke or whatever it is, you know, on a Saturday. I'm so excited. But it's something that we feel fulfilled by. It's something that we're willing to do because we know how important it is, just like raising a small child. So I hope that you guys, thank you for bearing with me. I always worry that some of my analogies might be super cheesy, but I also often hear from you guys that it really helps and sometimes helps you know how to talk with your leadership and other teams within your company about it because they may not understand fraud, but they might have kids or they may not understand fraud, but they watched Game of Thrones. So they'll really, you know, get my zombie analogy. Just whatever it is, I hope that it's helpful. All right. Well, with that, it was not as short of an episode as I thought. Give me a microphone and I can fill up some time. But I really appreciate you guys. I appreciate just how engaged you are and the fact that you tell your coworkers about it. And I love hearing how many times my name or fraudology or just my favorite podcast in quotation marks is used in team Slack channels. It just it makes my day. It makes this so worth it to find time, even if it's during nap time or school time right now, hop on the mic and share some information with you. So with that, I will say that Tuesday's episode is going to be really good. It's kind of going to be connected a little bit to the last couple of weeks, but in a different way. I got to talk to two 
very high-ranking agents and leaders, actually, I think they're both assistant directors of two of the core federal law enforcement agencies in the U.S. that are investigating and working to prosecute online crimes, including financial fraud. And that's something that in the U.S. we haven't seen be a priority over the years, but things are changing. And so these two leaders wanted to come on together to also show how important to them interagency collaboration is, just like it's so important to all of us to collaborate with our peers as well. And they showed some really interesting things. So definitely subscribe to Fraudology if you haven't already, so you can be alerted when that episode is out. And I will look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.